Yeah, and that's where I'm at. I'm not worried about it yet, but fuck it, I don't even know. I'm like, I just, I just gotta go with the flow. We'll see how long I can last before everyone just says, dude, you're absolutely fucking crazy. <laughs> and then, like, at that point, then we know some, like, my, my brain has finally crapped itself, so. I mean, it's a good time to be. It's a good time to go crazy because it's oh, meltdown yeah. May. Oh, it's, it's the it's, perfect it's, it's, time. That's the reason. Crazy. Did you just make that up? Is that a real thing? Meltdown, meltdown oh, May. May. Yeah, it's a, it's a real. You never heard of melt meltdown May. Hey, All right, remember so this is crazy. Let's explain meltdown May. So, um, oh, more 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 than that, Gareth. Oh my God, more than I, that. I, I never so, heard the term before, like 2018. I don't think. Oh, don't, oh, it's it dates it dates way way back. So. <laughs> So Meltdown May, Michael, is and uh -huh. and, and dear dear readers, um uh is uh, a special kind of springtime psychosis. So mm. uh winter does many a thing. So um it it causes hibernation, it causes us to retreat within ourselves. We get that beautiful seasonal affective disorder. Um right. and you you tend to you tend to retreat. You notice this all around. You know, you spend more time indoors. Your friends do. You maybe read a little bit more for like a week, and then you f just never read again um, because you're depressed now, and you can't read. You're too depressed. Um, yeah, and, and books are stupid. Of course, yes, and yeah. and none of it's worth anything. You're just a burden. Why try to get any better? Um, you know, normal yeah, winter yeah. thoughts. Um. Then the sun starts to come out. It starts peeking out from behind the clouds. It's warm. You can go on walks. You see people that you love again. And this triggers a brief, slow-mounting spike okay. of mania that lives within the bounds of May 1st to May 30th. And during that beautiful uh, so sociological manic pitch is when Meltdown May occurs. Well, thank you for explaining that. I mean, like, of honestly, course. I thought it was a quarantine specific term that just, you know, another <laughs> thing that was derived of just how fucking crazy everything is right now. I think um, I mean, this year is going to be probably the greatest meltdown May of all. I mean, it, it oh, started yeah. off just, I mean, we're on I, the day I, two. I, I and, for this and like, the, the, everyone's outside already. Like, and I'm in like, I'm currently sheltered in place in New Hampshire rather than Brooklyn where I'm actually, um, you, based out of uh, my girlfriend and I, we like got the fuck out in early March, and when um, we knew shit was gonna get really bad, and uh, we were really fortunate of having a, a friend up in New Hampshire that was like, "No, please come come to my place. I can't survive the shelter in place by myself in this house." Um, so That's yeah, I've been awesome. here since. <laughs> you don't want to be by yourself in like a, no. in the middle of nowhere in a shelter in place. You just lose your mind. Like um, we but have. Now, I walked, I was like just walking through, like walking down this usually completely desolate like street. And then everyone's just in the fucking like, like walking. They're just walking normally biking. This one dude biked right past me. Like, like I could feel the actual, I could smell his like sort of like pseudo sweat concoction with his like deodorant. Um, and I'm like, this is not cool. Everyone's already giving up on everything. And then like the Amazon trucks are driving around and like basically dropping something off at every single house. So you feel like you're being chased by Amazon trucks. It's that's what I thought you were going to talk about in terms of meltdown May. Like well, just, that is meltdown May. Yeah. So, so that meltdown, is the first yeah. and biggest example of meltdown May. That like there are some ones that are perhaps more immediately like, and we'll get to those. Oh, we will get to those. But but <laughs> mm. yeah, the fact that communally May first was designated as the day that we're going to start reopening things, and that also being the dawn of meltdown May. How much more meltdown May can you possibly get than going? Going outside during plague conditions is fine now. 
Yeah. Also, and no one's wearing a fucking mask. No one's wearing a mask. They're just like, it's, whatever. It's especially good because so this touches on a couple things. One, I, I voiced this a while ago. Um, the rhetoric around masks is really concerning because obviously their intended use is that if you need to go outside to get something, say like you need to get groceries or you need to get medication, things like that, then absolutely wear a mask because you have to go out for those anyway. And the mask, if you're wearing one and someone with COVID is wearing one, it drops the expected infection rate down to about 1.5%. But it's important to tell people and you can watch people sort of ignore this where it's like that's the expected infection rate that's if the masks are seated properly that's if they're made of the right material that that's there's a whole lot of other variables that go into there so don't bet on that the masks Mm -hmm. don't mean that you can now just hang out outside all the time as much as you like it means that things that are necessary can be safer and you can then the slippery slope starts happening where people are like, masks mean that I'm safe now. And then they go out enough and they're like, I've gone out a lot and I don't have COVID. I'm going to take the mask off. And then people will go like, well, I haven't seen a lot of that. And it's like, I've gone grocery shopping and I've seen a shitload of it. (laughs) Like, Yeah, I think my big meltdown is going to be when my hair finally gets to such a quarantine hair like level, which it's getting close to already, where it's just so fucking unwieldy and puffy and and like itchy and just annoying and then i'm just gonna like something's just gonna snap in my brain i'm just gonna like walk into the lake that's that's nearby like i don't know that's that's i feel like that's my meltdown may it's like he he just finally lost it it was his hair oh i was there i i buzzed my whole head in march for those reasons how how long is it now does it start to grow out no it's it's about an inch it's um my, my hair grows like crazy quickly then it just stops so I can never like, I can never like have short hair. I can never have long hair. It's always medium length. Uh, I got Very the I got the Asian hair, so it's like thick and like it, it, like it works well in like sh- like certain ways. But if it gets really long and you don't trim it or don't like do anything with it, it just becomes a problem. Hmm. It's just uh, annoying. The top of my hair all went away, so I grew a big beard. That's that's been yeah. my coping strategy. Also, I yeah. still have all the side hair because my partner's like, you can't shave your head. You look kind of like a Nazi when you do that. And I'm like, what? That? I, well, I mean, I am white and I'd be, okay, you know, yeah, I get it now. It's like, but then I'm going to have that bald guy thing. And it's like, yeah, you have to. Do the Bam Bam Bigelow thing. Do that. Do that <laughs> what Bam Bam Bigelow, that wrestler did where he like tattooed his entire cranium. That'd be lit. <laughs> also, Carrie King did that. I'm pretty sure Carrie King just copied Big Bam Bigelow, oh, actually, now that I think right. about actually, it. I don't know who did it first, but yes, they are. You're right. They both <laughs> it, yeah. They're the same Good dude. Um, Might as well be. But, I don't know. Okay, yeah, let's, so let's, let's get down. Let's, let's do, the, do the countdown of Meltdown May as of May 2nd. So we've had barely 48 hours so far. Yeah. Okay, so it, it, obviously, it, it, obviously, the king. Bring in the bell. No obviously, more Just yeah. Just, okay, yeah. we, we're in it, boys. We're the, off to the races. So, obvious uh, friend of the show, absolute king, Elon Musk, lost $14 billion off the <laughs> Tesla share price with a single tweet when Love he it. started tweeting the second verse of the Star Spangled Banner. Wait, and what? <laughs> yep. Wow. Uh-huh. So he, he's, this is real. By the this way, is, this is very real. Not making this up. And uh, yeah, he started tweeting the Star Spangled Banner and calls for freedom. Uh, said that Tesla's share price was over um, 
overvalued, which it is because they're just a car company and not a particularly good one. Right. And um, yeah, fourteen billion dollars gone from uh, Tesla yeah. share. The shares. Musk, you're getting a little little pungent, huh? Elon Musk. Yeah, he's um, yeah. A, little, a little grimy. And this happened what? This happened today. Uh-huh. This happened yesterday. yesterday. So he's probably like woken up and uh, found out what's happened by now. Some fun, um, another fun. I like how my like association with the internet lately has been strange. Too. I'm like, as I'm sure you you both know, like, and we've talked talked about it on the previous time I was on the show. Like, I'm always online, and I'm I feel like even though I've still been online, I it's harder to keep track of even like the simplest like things that are going on now. It's just like a big wave oh, of yeah. fake news and just like people being. You're just seeing your friends and people you somewhat know and and maybe don't know, but like they're just scrolling through your feed and like everyone's basically losing their minds. It's just like, oh, mm. uh, uh, that's basically it. it remember, that, remember, that, remember that eternal eternal screaming Twitter account that was just like <laughs> this like bot would essentially yeah. tweet out ah, like in like 140 characters, like a single tweet every hour. I don't know if it still exists, but that was one of my favorite bot accounts on Twitter, and like that is literally what we're seeing. From everyone, just in, just written differently, you know, oh, yeah. it's eternally so, screaming into the void. We had this magical moment online where, and this is just a number of years ago now, so at least five, but up to ten or more, where everyone was just discovering things like Twitter or Twitter or Tumblr or certain spaces on Facebook, and all of us had yeah. different spaces there. I was more of a Twitter guy, but you know, everyone had different spaces. But it was still the same kind of thing, which is all of us plugged in to the combination of fake news and global psychosis machine all at the same time and all looked at all the same shit constantly. Um, And as a result, online was thrilling. And in fact, it turned out that it was too thrilling and many people quit, which is fair. I get it. But I didn't do that because my brain is far, has a much higher salinity than theirs. I you're still so chasing big. the halcyon days, dude. You're still ch- you're chasing those days when it felt simpler, but actually it wasn't even ever simple. Oh. I argue that <laughs> social media was always as bad as it is now. It's just yeah, that as I agree. more people and more brands and just the nature of the political climate and now the pandemic, uh, we're, we're seeing a reflection of reality on like, like essentially the surface layer of social media. And it just so happens that because social media is what it is, it reflects the worst aspects of our reality as much as it connects us in ways. Uh, and we're now we're just like, yeah, we're, we're faced with this, um, this amazing yet amazingly honest and brutal and sad and depressing thing. Um, yeah. And for anyone who's interested in like either sociology or politics or um, some, some of the internal aspects of literature, like uh, the way that the ways that humans interact with one another, but also internalize their experience. Social media is a perennial fucking gold mine because it's mask off 24 seven. Even Mm. when someone's putting on the mask of like even grifters, it's it's a kind of mask off because online grifting looks totally different from in person stuff. It's it's, it's wildly different. It's get to witness the psychosis all the time. Yeah, Um, everyone's persona. persona. So, yeah, like on social. But then everyone logged off. For, we, for saw that with, um, we saw that with we saw that with Zinni Jardin, aka Jennifer Ham, oh, who's oh, yeah, 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 just background. been on a yeah, she's just been she's just been on one for a few years now. She's been she's been pretty insane. Like oh, I, yeah. I used to read uh, Boing Boing her website back in the day, like two thousand uh, to two thousand five, yeah. 
I like that was a normal that place. Founded that like yeah, um, everyone but has yeah. now. But, but it was yeah, a, like, it, a totally it, normal place to go for like news and fun stuff about the internet. Who started, uh, wacky stuff. Who started the all? Remember the all? I, oh yeah, I mean, yeah, I remember the all. That was that was a I do remember pretty it. decent site. Yeah, like, there, all these like good shut down? disappeared. Yeah, it, it, it shut did. down. There was this one article where he had nice. caught uh, the, the main, the founder of the all, uh, which I completely forget his name now, which sucks because this is like I should be you know name dropping him for this like amazing piece of this this like five hundred page. Not 500 page, sorry, 500 word little blog post that basically crystallized the nature of what social media is. Like he was doing it in a parody, a parody you know, he's parodying and satirizing um, social media, but he got it pinpoint right. <clears throat> now I need to like pick up my phone and find this. Uh, <laughs> Jesus, I need to find it now. But yeah, um, we've had a yeah. bunch of little, little micro uh, May meltdowns. Uh, there was a guy who uh, hates beaches. He said they have no history and no movements, and that uh, they are a late capitalist subject, and that everyone who likes them is the last man. Um, and that's that's a really lovely one. That's a, especially yeah, like because that. we have we have writing from like the the Adas of, of Norse of Norse tradition of beaches. We have writings <laughs> of uh, we have like uh, Bedouin tales that uh, invoke beaches. Um, we have bits mm. in the fucking Upanishads, you know, Hindu scripture about beaches and all of this. <laughs> no, no. The only yeah. people who love beaches, capitalists. Exactly. Oh, I found it. I <laughs> oh, found hell it. yeah. Link that okay, shit. Okay, so his name was Alex Bulk. B-A-L-K. And the name of the article is The Spirit of the Internet. And the subhead is You Won't Believe Who Has It. And it, I'm not going to read like all of it, but like he basically crystallized, he, he, he founds three laws of the internet. He calls them Balk's Three Laws. So first law, everything you hate about the internet is actually everything you hate about people. Second law, mm -hmm. the worst thing is knowing what everyone thinks about anything. Correct. Third law, if you think the internet is terrible now, just wait a while. Yeah. And like, it was perfect. Like he's hundred yeah. percent, I believe all those, those three tenants are totally true and they're broad, but they're true. And it was done in a pair. He was definitely like, you know, having fun with it, but he, he just nailed it. That That's social media right there. So the thing that I was gesturing to is there, there was a period there after, after this, this golden age of Twitter deep psychosis where a bunch of people logged off because they were like, I think this sucks. I'd like to not think about how this is all real. And everyone that I've ever met is a fucking insane person. And that means I'm probably also a fucking insane person. Let's go back in the sand. And then Twitter got duller over time in certain ways. Um, until quarantine happened, then it all, then everyone logged back in because they had nothing else to do. And it was very thrilling for, a, uh, for a bit. And then they all started to, to, uh, drift away again, but it did give us these weird little artifacts like, um, the Zini one in specific the, for, for at least this year's meltdown may, um, is tied to the perennial, Meltdown May generating machine, which is Chapo Trap House. I don't think yeah. it's deliberately their fault. I don't think mm -hmm. they set out to do this, but people who really like or really dislike Chapo both go insane. Hmm. Oh, yeah. I don't know why. But they, they know this, and they have they have said this as as much themselves. Yeah, and they, it's like their most fans are generally insane. I, I've been in a room with five hundred Chapo Trap House fans. It's it. They're not good people. <laughs> most yeah. 
people. What was that like? Can I get more details as to what that was like? <laughs> oh, that was that was, um, that was at the the live show in. They did a live show here in Manchester, and um, yeah, I just I just went along for to for a laugh, and it was it was a good show. But um, yeah, if if the roof collapsed there, you would have lost a lot of the surly IT managers in the Manchester right. greater area. There was a lot of yeah, um, yeah a lot of uh, dudes who uh, probably weren't going home to their girlfriend that night. <laughs> or indeed, it's crazy anyway. how much reach Chapo has. Like yeah. I remember when oh, they yeah. first started up, and now like then I like completely tuned out until like maybe. Sometime last year when I was still working at Melville House and we were putting out a book by uh, an author that happened to just always be on Tra- Chapo, like as a guest. Um, and then I looked back and I was like, shit, Chapo went like zero to 60. Damn. Okay. Yeah. yeah they, really uh, fast. It's, it's and huge. Yeah, they, they generate some really, I mean, we, we get this in the left in general of like um, a lot of us are painfully not normal. Um, we would love to be normal, but we can't. And that's just that's just life. Um, but sometimes it gets more like um, wildly destructively insane. Like the uh, there's this I don't even know her full name, Gwen something, who's decided that Gwen Snyder, not uh, Gwen Snyder, that not only are Chapo fascist instead of uh, commies, which is a common refrain that you hear from people, which is basically their way of saying that and to be fair this part i think is fair they go they make jokes about certain things that i don't think you should be making jokes about even if you're making fun of the and that i think contributes to you know any number of others i'm not gonna go through the whole argument there because we've heard it from people and there there is a there is an amount of truth to that but i think most adults can follow where it's like okay that's gonna rub some people the wrong way and that's the cost of doing business you can't make jokes like that and then tell people that are deliberately provocative and then tell people that they're not allowed to be provoked. That's because I'm wondering. Yeah, I mean, like any stand-up comedian is going to like say the same thing. Like, yeah. especially if they have any provocation like to their, their skits, like they go in knowing that, that they're going to have equally the same, they're going to have at least the same number of haters as they do followers or like fans, if not more, just by the nature of how this affects people. Like it's also subjective. Um, and I'm saying in general, I'm not like thinking politically. Yeah. I'm just saying like in general, if you're joking about something or bringing up an issue, you're going to get a wide range of responses, specifically if you have a platform already or build a platform that has that kind of draw. Yeah, and it's it's. I mean, I watch enough professional wrestling, but I'm like, okay, there's there's you still getting it? maneuvers. Oh, yeah, no, no, I just found something that I want to like ask you. I'll pick your brain a little bit on. Absolutely. Wait, <laughs> you're so. What are you watching? Like AEW and NXT. Um. So uh, I watch a mix of things. Um. Obviously, watching AEW because they're consistently the best one. I have I have my quibbles with them to be fair, but they're a little bit like um, stale to me a little bit, but I love like Darby Allen and stuff like that. Like there's some yeah, really I, cool talent, but yeah. It reminds me of some of my issues that I have with like Kenny Omega's epics, which the and we talked with with Aubrey um Citizen who who did a like a really awesome comic about the history of professional wrestling and he um he and I vibed on this little point which is that the first the first 
uh, Kenny Omega epic you see. You're like, holy shit, I forgot wrestling could do that. What do you, what do you mean by that, by the way? I mean, I'm it's, a little scared. I'm like, so, so if you remember, like, I don't remember if, like, if you, if, like, basically, I'm at this point with pro wrestling where I am nostalgic for it. I still follow it in the sense, like, from a distance, just, just enough to play Fire Pro Wrestling World and know who the all these created wrestlers are. <laughs> I used to be super fucking into pro wrestling during like obviously ECW era. And then I lasted until like after the attitude era ended and then ROH and like this Puretsu and sort of like this, this sort of like resurgence of true talent, like talented wrestling matches yeah. came back. And then I checked out for like 10 so, years. So yeah. Kenny Omega is probably ha has under his belt, like not just some of, but the best matches in the past 10 years, maybe 15 years. Um, and that's not really exaggeration. That's, that's sort of broadly accepted, but they, a lot of them live in this 30, a lot yeah. of them live in this 30 to 60 minute window. And mm -hmm. so like, obviously you have some greats that live there. You have, you know, the, the, the Shawn Michaels, Iron Man matches of, of which there are a handful that are, they're all master classes. You know, you have, that generates uh, a lot of raw material that you can, a lot of great wrestlers have made classic matches out of. But then for him specifically, by the time you see like the third one, you're like, okay, I think I'm noticing a pattern. And then like right. it, you start going like, okay, this has like a set rhythm. They're not, they're not any less impressive on a technical end, but the impact gets lowered because even though, they space them out really well. Like it's like one every year or two years. It's still like, yeah, but once I hear that he's going to be in an Iron Man match, I can sort of. You can already know. Yeah. Yeah. And so um, like, who are some of like, who are some of like the ones that you really, so like for me, like one of my favorite wrestlers that in terms of psychology was Raven, you know, Scott Levy. Oh, yeah, I love was. Raven. I especially <laughs> love Raven after he left WCW and really got to dive into that character in a way that he didn't get to during the attitude like the era. DNA yeah. stuff yeah yeah i, like he I thought that that was really good brilliant guy in terms he, so he, he he obviously has athleticism and, and natural raw like physical talent but you he would do like two or three moves over the course of a 30 minute match but because you don't even really notice that because he's playing the role so well he's doing all the yeah. psychology he's he's showing up he's allowing his opponent who is usually like a younger guy or like a little more athletic guy do it he'll that guy will do more moves and do more other things but like he'll just sort of like be the guy who's getting hit a lot and then come back with a lot of like hardcore wrestling and then just like play that fucking game that I, that, that is what's so beautiful about pro wrestling um, where it's the psychology of it. And the, the fact that the storyline is not met with words, it's met with like facial gestures and, and the pain in the in and around the ring. Yeah. It's and, the, um, the physical theater component. Yeah. Yeah. And like, what happened to him? I don't, uh, he, yeah. uh, he had like a pretty solid career in TNA. And then I think he, um, retired due to like compounding injury stuff and became a producer, if I remember correctly. Um, I, I know that he's still involved in some way, but I, I think it's more like backstage stuff. Um, I yeah. watch a lot of, like, I watch a lot of WWE, but it, and there's the, the telltale, butt that anyone who watches <laughs> wrestling now will recognize Vince McMahon's gone totally shit for brains. He's probably the greatest genius that yeah. wrestling has ever produced but the this is this isn't this isn't the mr mcmahon genius figure that we all like know and respect for a while now he's been just absolute fucking shit for brains um but because of that 
the um, the amount of hours of WWE content that gets produced every fucking week, um, which is like a psychopathic number. I think it's I, it's like nine hours of wrestling well, every week, not counting pay per views. Yeah, didn't he somehow like him and Linda like they got like essential <laughs> worker status for WWE? Mm. Yeah, because yep. because Linda is uh, the head of the small business committee for um, Trump, and through that was able to. And Trump and Vince uh, know each other from way, way back and was able to pull some strings to get. So when Trump put together his like cabal of people to look into restarting the economy, they were all figures from the sports world, literally every single person, which is not a great sign. Um, And one of them was inexplicably also Vince McMahon, because he doesn't. This is one thing. This is persnickety and has nothing to do with the politics of this, uh, admittedly, which are far more worrisome. But he can't decide whether he wants WWE to be viewed as sports or just com- some kind of like entertaining kids TV show. Oh, and he so doesn't he'll do- know. Yeah, he doesn't yeah, know. He it's clearly he doesn't know. Like he's just yeah. chasing numbers. And like people, people who watch wrestling, even kids who watch wrestling know that it's a hybrid of the two. And we just sort of accept that. That's part of the charm of it. But then he will get mad if people refer to it as wrestling he's like no it's sports entertainment but it's like why are you putting sports in but we can't name the sport that it is what like (laughs) what do we fucking gain from that what's funny is like literally no other federation including aew and roh and all that stuff has has ever really embraced this sports entertainment significant whatever you call it the, yeah. the term um social signifier pro wrestling it's pro wrestling it's it's a yeah. it's a fabricated <laughs> thing but it's its own fucking thing and it's just to me that's that's whole, I, so, so yeah. hilarious like it's like dull. like i like i love ufc i love mma but we're not gonna get yeah. the undertaker from that world and the undertaker is the greatest character in wrestling period there's <laughs> i don't think there's gonna be someone although the fiend could oh, be that, better long term that, tra- that trailed off though right like didn't they fuck up the fiend like no they um, so this, this is what I was getting to with the WWE stuff. So obviously it's, uh, I just recounted it's 10 hours every week. So you get two hours of NXT, an hour of main event, an hour of superstars, then three hours each of SmackDown and raw. Although Damn. SmackDown might only be two hours, which would make it nine, but even still that's nine or 10 hours every week, not counting pay-per-views, which only add to that number. They've never canceled a Raw because a pay-per-view happened the night before and people would be too tired. Literally never. Um, So it's a lot of wrestling, which means that- like, why are our wrestlers all like on these different kinds of like painkillers and drugs? Oh, I wonder why. Yeah, it absolutely fucking destroys them. And it's it's, uh, nightmarish and absolutely needs to stop. But- one of the very sliver thin silver linings there is that between the shit for brains Vince McMahon and the absolutely psychopathic body and mind destroying schedules of them, you do get great wrestling falling between the cracks. Because they also have a shitload of super talented people. Like they they go out of their way to acquire the most talented people and for the most part throw mm. them away. But yeah. every now and again, every now oh. and again, they're like, no one's paying attention. This is yeah. just a mid-card match. Let's fucking tear the roof off. And what did they do? Sorry, not to interrupt, but like, I remember this guy. I briefly saw like the emergence of him in NXT, like when they signed him from uh, New Japan. I think it was mm-hmm. Shinsuke Nakamura. What happened to him? Squandered him. Um. Uh. So oh. his NXT run is fucking incredible. Absolutely worth going back and watching. They gave him 
big runs with um, Sami Zayn, uh, who used to be El Generico, obviously. Um, they gave right. him big yeah. runs with Samoa Joe. They gave him big runs with Finn Balor, who used to be Prince Devitt. Um, yeah. And like uh, any like wrestling nerd would look at those names on a sheet and be like, holy fuck, what? <laughs> like, and, and it lived up yeah. to that. It was just fucking incredible. Awesome. Then they moved him to the main event and Vince did this thing where Vince is a huge racist piece of shit. We all know that. Um, but yeah. he did yeah. this thing that he also does to wrestlers where he goes, if you want to move up the card, you need to learn English. And it's like, no, give them a manager. Oh, Done this yeah. since the seventies. Like give, give them a talker and then have them wrestle. And he's like, no, dude, Sabu to- never said a word in any, right. Of this sh- yeah. And he was, he was fucking huge. Like he, he never be- I think he, did he win a world title? He, he was, was a major. Yeah. Sabu like got, yeah, basically I think he basically got every major belt that you could get in any, in all the bigs, except for WWF or E. If I don't know if they, I forget when they transitioned to E because of that, like whole, you know, the world wildlife yeah. federation. Yeah. <laughs> or, um, yeah. But like uh, when, when he was in the WWE, I know he got some, maybe his hardcore title and stuff like that, but they, you know, they washed him out. They fought, they didn't know what to do with yeah. him. So. Yeah, even though he's like massively respected, and even he's in the locker room, people were like, "Next to the yeah. sky," and everyone's just like, "What?" But then by the third time you see that, you're like, "Oh shit!" That means basically all that mayhem that he does in the ring, and that's all you need, you know? It's just so hmm. one of the things that fell through the cracks. So obviously, they they Bray Wyatt was like super buzzed about both by wrestling fans and by people who like the more theatrical end, where it's like, "Oh my god, this guy's a great wrestler," and he is nailing this character that feels finally like it's approaching undertaker levels because it, for me, undertaker still the highest bar for character work in wrestling. There's a lot yeah. of other great characters, but he's like, he's good. I, yeah, the, he's like the, yeah. the Ulysses of, of wrestling characters where it's like, <laughs> oh, they don't, they don't they realist. Like, oh, you they keep on. bringing him out like during like WrestleManias. I think maybe they stopped that. Yeah. Right. No, nope. yeah. they still keep, they still keep doing it. And I, honestly, the past couple have been good. There was okay. one specific one where it was, he had a match with Roman Reigns and it was, he was so sluggish that you were like, oh my God, this dude needs to retire. But then he, so this brings up the last, last year, this year's WrestleMania, the last WrestleMania that happened, which was this year. There we go. Um, they filmed two like on location segments, you know, okay. cause like classic WWE used to have, like these little, like the famous one in the Attitude Era of the supermarket fight between uh, Booker T and uh, Stone Cold. Um, yeah, yeah, these, like, I remember that. One. Weird yeah, that on location. Fun, yeah, that was so good. They had two of those. One of them was AJ Styles versus Undertaker in a graveyard. Um, so they're they're giving AJ his due. Then please tell oh me. Oh my that. God! Yes. Okay, AJ good. has held the belt multiple times um he's he's, he's up there dude he's you're talking about like people you're, you're saying earlier like under yes his character will never never be better than on the undertaker character but in terms of his athleticism and his just ability in the ring like aj styles is wow maybe the best living wrestler the only ones that i could think are maybe better are like naito and uh the guy uh, uh, i can't I can't believe that I'm forgetting his name. The guy's name be- begins with O and was the um, uh, New Japan champ for like forever. What FMW guy? Onida? Uh, Onida? 
Uh, yeah, yeah, I think so. The 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 rain the rainmaker. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I can't remember. But uh, yeah, no, they they definitely are. So there was a match. That match was fucking crazy. They brought back Biker Taker for it, <laughs> but now Biker Taker can also teleport. <laughs> okay, so that's it's fucking crazy. lit. Yeah. And then they did uh, like a very an ultra narrative match. Uh, they called it a Firefly Fun Firefly Funhouse match between uh, Bray Wyatt as the Fiend against John Cena, and it was supposed to be about focusing on how John Cena crushed Bray Wyatt's momentum in the middle of it and basically destroyed it, it, for the next three years. That character was just slowly running out of steam until they rebooted him as the Fiend, and they did barely functions as a wrestling match there are these little moments that are wrestling match moments but it's mostly this ultra narrative thing and it's about half an hour and it's fucking incredible like it's fucking amazing yeah one so, of the, the best wrestling things i've dude. seen in years yeah yeah I'm, I'm glad that the fiend is back because like honestly i had my my criticisms when i saw like that mask it looked yeah. cool and creepy but it also looked really dumb but then the laugh and and like the whole like him just showing up and beating someone up and then they do that weird like squeaky noise thing and then him just laughing and he just like disappears. They're like, nailing the whole, it. Yeah. Also the whole Firefly Funhouse like gimmick with the puppets and stuff and like the follow the vultures thing becomes this little uh, vulture puppet. He has a Vince McMahon puppet. He has a sister Abigail. Pu- oh, it's oh, it's incredible. But yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so we've had. Uh, yearly allowance of wrestling discourse uh-huh. i know i never expected to have talked this <laughs> about wrestling no uh, it's good we, we... i haven't i like this is act- literally you just like got me talking about wrestling and no one has in the past like maybe eight eight years or something like that who knows well, i'm that's, glad that's that i cracked that back open for you yeah yeah and then honestly i've been playing fire pro wrestling world a lot i've been playing a lot of games that's been helping me through all this um and I've been playing that game and like rediscovering characters or you know wrestlers I knew and then stuff I didn't know. Well, so we're going to talk about your book at some point. Don't worry, <laughs> <laughs> we'll get there. But um, let, let's let's break for some music. Let's. Uh, so I found this band on Bandcamp, which is usually how I find a lot of stuff, and the cover looked cool as fuck. Um, and we're metalheads like... and stupid, so that definitely that's an immediate plus. That's an immediate draw. Yeah, I mean, it looked like it's just this gross. It's um, it looks like reek of putrefaction. Is that it? I was about to say, like, you can do it, man. You, yeah. I believe in you. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> it looks like carcasses reek of putrefaction from reach of. Re- there we go yeah yeah, that one it looks like (laughs) it's it's that genre of like collage of gross like shit and pus and gnarly shit yeah just disgusting stuff from like mexican gore tabloids um they're a band called fluids from phoenix arizona they look (laughs) like they're gonna bite someone and give them a disease Uh, these these are just like tough guys. 
I, I love how uh, I've read Finnegan's Wake and I've read Ulysses and stuff like that. And then, you know, Virginia Woolf and all that kind of stuff. And then Death Metal just, just immediately leaves me like a giggling 13 year old. Yeah. <laughs> like they're a band called Fluids. And I'm like, yeah. yeah. They're, so, dude, they're so metal that they don't even have to even try with their name. We're just Fluids. <laughs> and it, it's all caps too. All caps. And um, yeah. all of that. I cry there, but. But I should do the growl. I can't really do the growl very well anymore. Yeah, I, I don't know. But um, yeah, oh, all wow, that is that's really gross looking. That's yeah. great. And mm-hmm. so the the songs of the album are all titled "Extorted," "Coerced," "Capped," "Redacted," "Quartered," "Chunked," "Hammered," and "Smothered." Um, we're gonna do "Redacted." No idea why. Um, probably the least gross i guess (laughs) and um the songs themselves are utterly disgusting though just really really gross and i love that about them uh yeah they just hit all the right spots for being just disgusting and stupid and ignorant and they look like they're gonna hurt me so uh yeah so here's redacted by fluids off of um the album just the perfectly titled ignorance exalted
that was uh, Fluids with Redacted. I was just disgusting and ignorant and uh, yeah, real good. Uh, but Michael, yeah, in addition lingering. to oh no, you go sorry, on. Michael, in addition to being a uh, wrestling fan, a, a, a recidivist wrestling yeah, fan, right. he's become a wrestling fan again. Langdon has can convert people. He's like a, a street preacher with that like charisma. Uh-huh. Just like put lay hands on you, and then you're saved. Um, so he is also a writer and a fuck ton of other things because you're a very busy person. Like you founded Civil Coping Mechanisms, which was like in brilliant small press. Thank you. Uh, yeah. Then the accomplices, also brilliant yep. small press. Uh, I think you're uh, doing a um, uh, like a magazine. Was it? Um, Oh uh, yeah, the new modality. Yeah, that one. Yeah, that's yeah. a like a, a, been a Kickstarter or kicks like a crowdfunded project, and it's been yeah, funded. So it, and it's coming out funded, soon. Yeah, it, it was completely funded. It's basically an, we we explore the it, we call it experiments in culture. So not necessarily like new societies, but how society is changing within society. Okay, like give me an example there. Meow wolf. You know, like we always <laughs> use that and like. Burning Man is like the the first like two obvious ideas of like these kinds of communities that are growing within our ecosystem. Mm-hmm. And um, we just finished issue one, and there's a lot of stuff in there. Like there's one like on on we have a, a how to actually perform a not perform but host a a psychedelic um, party where no one gets you know hurt, no one mm-hmm. gets like no one has a bad acid trip or anything like that. So we're it's a mixture of trying to find new expansive modes of social interaction, and like you know me saying this now with with the pandemic, you know it's even more kind of like it actually amplifies the point of the magazine. Um, we're trying to document all of that, mm-hmm. all everything like how, how we are going to continue navigating our space our actual spaces to create new spaces where we can feel comfortable and be alive and. And, and you know like explore ideas nice awesome so um you're here specifically because of the book uh, dreams of being which is uh coming out soon or is it out already it's a uh, may 12th may 12th so real soon yeah um yeah. okay so yeah tell us about dreams of being because I, I liked my pet serial killer your previous one uh, this is like a kind of I've, i have to admit First thing, I, I only read two chapters. I had a very busy week, so Langdon's oh, yeah. read it all, so he can chapters. he can he can yeah. talk about more. But um, yeah, yeah, my pet serial killer uh, was good as hell, and um, this is this is pretty different. It's very say. different. Yeah. yeah, so I would argue that it's like the exact opposite of my pet serial killer. Um, it's by virtue of it being you know like May second, and we're like in the heat of like the kind of flattening the curve and all that stuff. This book kind of reads like science fiction now um but basically what happened was um in june 2017 i went on this social media driven road trip where like i basically by myself had to go from brooklyn to portland oregon in one month but i could only go where social media told me to go um meaning that like someone would have to like invite me to need to like crash on their couch and then while at in that city i'd have to do one sort of like something something whatever it may be whether it be like a reading helping out somewhere it didn't matter what but i um kind of created this whole social experiment that i wanted to to complete and i was able to do that um but then by the time i got back when i was supposed to write about it i just couldn't 
And um, I re remembered this prompt that Cameron Pierce, the editor of Lazy Fascist Press, who was my editor for a number of books, he, he like put a bunch of like joke prompts on Facebook, like maybe six months before I actually did the road trip. And one of them really was like really resonated with me because uh, it involved Jiro Dreams of Sushi, Jiro Ano's um, documentary. He's a famous mm -hmm. sushi chef that that's able to he's created like almost the uh, I think people like, like I'm not a culinary expert, obviously, but like. All of the experts there, they including like Anthony Bourdain and everyone else, like they always talk about how his sushi is so simple, but it has so much has more flavor than any of like the most fanciful sushi you'd ever eat. Like it, it was like it's almost perfection, um, and it melts in your mouth. Like the actual rice melts in your mouth. Um, yeah. So Jiro, so his, the prompt was Jiro dreams of sushi, where Jiro dreams no, uh, does nothing but dream of sushi, having failed to become a sushi chef. Of course that. By the fact of being such a fan of the documentary, which is about your artistic endeavors and sacrifice and like going day, going full throttle day, day after day, like trying to like learn more about the craft that you're trying to, that you've like devoted your life to. Um, I decided to kind of run with that. And that was the result was dreams of being. And um, yeah, it became sort of this uh, an equal parts exercise and um, like a therapy session of sorts uh, after that road trip. And what you read now is essentially what that was. Cool. So, so talk us through a little bit of the plot. So, what's roughly happening in it? Yeah, yeah. So, there's an for almost the entire novel, the narrator, which is first person. Um, you never know his name, but he's basically suffering from writer's block, wandering around New York City. Literally, like his routine is to. Start in Brooklyn and walk all the way through Manhattan, all the way up to like Harlem and like, you know, up there in the Bronx and then walk back and just like, but, but while doing so basically being in his own head, not really interacting with people. And he's just, he's kind of going through something, you know, I never explained what, but while doing so at the very, like the one, the beginning scenes of the, the book, the novel, um, he encounters a uh, restaurant opening in Manhattan. Um, and then while kind of observing it, just the commotion and the, the theatrics of it, he hears this like kind of rough, rough voice, but like a very like opinionated voice. And it turns out to be Jiro. Um, then they, the basic nature of the book is we see a failed, you know, chef in, in Jiro Ano. And we have this writer who just becomes compelled to get to know this guy. Um, he kind of vibes off the guy and like, he has no other prospects and uh and in, in talking with jiro when like in the initial um interaction the inter initial introduction they uh, jiro kind of like judges him so he asks him like what what do you do like not just like what do you do for work but like what do you do it's like the true question like why do you exist um and then he kind of lies and says that he's a a, a director um thinking that it would sound more like you know a lucrative thing than saying I'm a writer because when you say you're a writer, the, no one knows what that means anymore. Um, so he lies through a lot of the the book and pretends to to be like documenting this this whole thing, this like Jiro's prowess as a social uh, not social uh, sushi so, uh, sushi chef. Um, and like you know, then at some point, something obviously the, the lie is going to show up, but he uses the idea of essentially creating a documentary to exhibit Jiro's long lost, you know, undervalued um, prowess as a sushi chef uh, to, to get to know the guy and also tangentially get to know what the, what the fuck he is as a writer. Cool. Nice. 
So, uh, do you like sushi? <laughs> uh, actually, yes. Wouldn't it be okay, funny good. if I said, like, no, I actually fucking don't care. Um, no, no, I'm no it tastes fan. like trash. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm, I'm, I miss it. I miss it dearly. Like, uh, that's, I know, that's same. I'd say that, so the two cuisines for me are like, there's nothing like, I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit of a, people are going to like hate me for saying this, but like uh, sashimi, like I like it, but like nothing's wowed me with the sashimi yet. I really mm-hmm. do like a nice standard, like spicy, like some kind of roll, you know? Mm, uh, yeah. Uh, and then ramen, like authentic ramen. Those are like my two mm. twin like bastions of awesome cuisine. Like I just could, I could always have a nice, great, real, you know, authentic bowl of ramen or, you know, sushi. Uh, I'm, I'm lucky that I live just down the road from an izakaya. Um, so like, it actual yeah, yeah. like good, like ramen is literally like a couple minutes away. And are they still open for takeout and stuff? They're open for pickup. So nice. thankfully it is available. Um, sushi, unfortunately, is a lot harder to um, a lot harder to come by in quarantine conditions because of the ability to the, 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 yeah, mostly yeah. the shipping in for, for the fish and yeah. stuff like that. Um, it's troubling for sure. God, yeah. God I miss it. Yeah, no, I, yeah, I'm going to be the definitely... first thing I do when the quarantine ends is sushi. So I'm, I'm saying uh, really my, my partner is of Ryukyuan descent, and you can tell which one of us is the white one and which one of us is the non-white one when we go to a sushi restaurant and I'm ordering a shitload of rolls and they're ordering a bunch of like sushi and sashimi and things like that. And they're like, yeah. I love sushi rice, but I got to get me my plain slice of fish. And I'm like, no, I need all of it. I need a bunch of shit wrapped up in beautiful rice, wrapped up in that nori. Mmm. I'm yeah, like, I yeah, if I have just the fish, I can have the seaweed. You know? Fuck but you haven't, but no one here, obviously, none, no one, no one on this uh, podcast has tried the like the like the that masterful sushi. Like, no. the, I know there's one in. I, I'm hoping it's still around when this is all over. But the apprentice at Jira in, in the the move in the documentary, there's no the apprentice there. He eventually, um, maybe a year or two after the the debut of that documentary, he kind of sort of quote unquote graduated um, from the apprentice, and he left Japan and went to New York City. And started his own restaurant. And people have argued that his uh, his sushi is not only comparable, but like pretty pretty like spot on to Jiro's mode of um, you know culinary expertise. Like he's learned so much from them that like it's melt in your mouth, amazing. And you get you get more from one sashimi than like an entire roll, and then some. So like I think like I agree like I'm more of a roll type person because I like the flavors and all that stuff, but and like I, I, I'm also just like naturally not a big seafood person when it, uh, outside of sushi. So like sashimi is kind of hit or miss for me. But like I, f- I think it's just that we're not eating the right sashimi. You know, we're just yeah, it's weird. Like, like, yeah, I, I love shellfish. I, I'm not my my mom is from New England. Loves seafood. My dad lived in Boston for a while. That's where he met my mom. And you know, if you live in New England, especially in the like the coastal area like that, like Boston is literally on, on the sea. They're like, yeah, yeah, no, we love seafood. We're all about, and then I'm growing up and I'm like, fish tastes like garbage. They got garbage fast flavors. I like <laughs> the crab, the crab, the noble crab. Delicious. Um, yeah. You take all that hard shit off. Fuck, fuck it. Terrible. <laughs> um, yeah. I used to go to this one sushi place that was, that was probably like one of the good ones. Like the, the head chef there was, um, uh, <clears throat> come from Nobu, which I think is owned by Robert De Niro. 
of all people. Uh, and it was it was really good. I like I would drop like a hundred pounds there some like once a month. That'd be my okay. present to myself every month. But then I would go to this place in Canada, which is not known for its sushi. Like middle of Canada, nowhere near anywhere you could get fresh f- fresh fish. Mm-hmm. And it was like a this chain of uh, all you can eat sushi restaurants that where you just order off an iPad and they would just bring it, bring it to you on the table. And it would, it was, it was garbage sushi. It was like, you know, like uh, Philadelphia rolls with cream cheese in it, which Japanese person would, cheese. yeah, yeah it was <laughs> loads of cream cheese. Those are seafood sticks. Uh, yeah, I, I love that, that though, but I will never order it personally. If it's in front of me, I'll eat it and I will like it. But I will not. Oh, yeah. it's so, I will it not is, lock eyes good. with someone and tell them to bring me the cream cheese sushi. That's not. Gonna <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I've, we've all been to one of those like all you can eat kind of things, and like you just oh, yeah. like start eating the sushi. You're like, there's no meat in this shit. And if there is, it's very. It's like a, from a stick. You know, it's like processed meat or something like that. I don't know. It's, you know, pseudo crab. <laughs> that crab stick stuff. Yeah. I do love it when they like blend it together with like the the crunch whatever it is like the panko flakes or whatever the fuck they do and like that, that that's a solid spicy tuna little roll or a spicy crab roll I mean but um yeah this is nothing special obviously this is not like true sushi it's sort of like the commodification of sushi right it's like what we get yeah down the line mm, yeah so Langdon you've you've unlike me you've read the book I hope. And yeah. um, so, put <laughs> him on the spot, dude. You just like, what if he didn't? <laughs> yeah, I, I was that'd be an exciting now. roll of the dice. We'd be like, hey, so tell us all about your book. <laughs> <laughs> just, just read it to us, please. And uh, we'll, we'll be no, here for eight hours. And, uh, yeah, he, what is yeah, he on chapter long. three then? <laughs> oh, really? Or the chapter four? Um, yeah, Langdon, um, you want to you want to take take things from here? Because uh, I'm not in a state to do so. So mostly I like I tend to focus more on the prose side of things. I, I've done that thing that happens when you've either read enough books or studied literature for long enough that um, suddenly large chunks of what normal people would even pay attention to in a book, your brain just doesn't it just doesn't enter anymore. You're like characters. What? Yeah. No. Yep. What? I get it. What? I get it. Um, Dude, I'm so, there with you too. <laughs> so I, so that's that's the thing that was mostly taken by with your book, where there's clearly this uh, this massive attention uh, paid to your prose. Where I really loved how it would cut between these moments of like very stark and very firmly material simplicity, where it felt it felt very grounded, and then these other passages that deliberately went and and became a lot cloudier. Um, yeah, and yeah. I thought especially your your balance of those two, um, especially given. I mean, obviously it was intentional given the whole conceit of it. Um, but the way that you were able to nail that on the prosaic end and make it not feel contrived, like it felt like this controlled and deliberate um, evocational thing rather than, it's, we've all been in writing workshops. There are definitely moments where people have a good idea on paper and then when they actually do it, it's all hackneyed and stuff. I mm-hmm. just, I, um, in so there's a recurring theme uh, of our podcast where either uh, Gareth will believe that he's told me that the person we're talking to is the author of a work. Uh, in this case, he actually did. 
So I didn't know that time. Wow. But then yeah. this is the, so that's always thrilling for me where all of a sudden I yeah. have to start like sorting through my notes and being like, can I say this directly to the person who made this book? Oh, <laughs> um, fucking do it. Just, you're, yeah, that's like the nature of the critic, right? Like to, well, even it, in- it, it's more that sometimes it will be a specific kind of praise and wanting to engage with something that can sometimes, like, I'm worried that it will sound like I'm just sucking up to someone. Um, uh, versus like no there's this part that i found really supple and because i've also gotten to that point of i've gotten to the point of like criticism because i work both doing this stuff and then also um like music criticism that there's enough stuff in the day that if i'm really not feeling something i won't even bother to generate a negative critique i'll just just stop um so it's yeah, like yeah. silence becomes my mode of negative critique <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's your code. That's like how you like, you know, manage every all of it. I, I, yeah. I do. I do a similar thing, you know, with with pretty much anything, really. It's we it's have to. it's the slush pile of the critic world. Um, like there isn't enough time to do like a firm, like or the. It's more like the form letter rejection of the critical world, where it's like you don't always have the time to tell someone why you didn't like something and even if you did you're worried like i don't want them to quit i just thought this sucked and i'm worried that if i tell them why i thought it sucked they'll quit <laughs> like they'll just uh, um yeah but in this instance it was that i didn't know that you were like one of like had worked in melville house and had um founded and worked in all these other presses that like i've um i'm not sure if i've pitched all of them, but like ha- have a great deal of respect for. So it's, it was more like, oh, this is this is making sense. Why this is so like, um, especially once Gareth brought up like, oh, this person, uh, I I forget whether you had like founded Melville House or just was like a. No, very- I founded I founded a civil coping mechanisms, but I worked at Melville House I, for like about a, a little over a year. And I, I I love civil coping mechanisms as well. Um. Okay. I can, that, that stylistic, like, shadow of both of, of both of those, um, publication houses, that's too fancy of a word. Yeah, you know what I'm trying to say. Publications. Yeah. Um, lives over this work. That, it suddenly made it a lot more clear, like, that kind of, the, the specific approach to prose that you have, um, Mm -hmm. that I like specifically because it's this very modernist, um, modernist isn't the right word although there are blends of the modernist writers in it um like this gets back to my my comment about how you were able to um so satisfyingly juxtapose like a firm and simple and material language versus uh more eloquent and more clouded language is having that grounding in um like the tactility of like objectivist poetry um, that right. that I see right. a lot of, of like William Carlos Williams, like being able to like, okay, it's giving me a clear image, a clear object, a clear touch point. And then these not being afraid to loop off into these more eloquent, um, almost digressions, but because they're living yeah. within someone dreaming of something that cannot be true, it becomes that sort of like, there's definitely is my go-to thing that I talk there's definitely fear there. Like, like when I was writing it, like I was trying to essentially create the cadence from the documentary, you know? Yeah. So the, the, the tangibility you talked about where it was like the actual movement of a scene was pretty straightforward. That's actually the, that was the hardest fucking part of yeah. writing. 
Um, and then like the whole dithering kind of like getting all like lost in, in thought that had to happen. I felt like just on like basically dissecting the documentary. They never do that. They don't have time to do that. It's an hour long, but there's elements of that where they try to explore it. Like Jiro trying to explain himself and like they do like the touring of the different types of sushi and all this other stuff. Um, that was sort of what the, the dithering por portions of the, the novel were supposed to be like where from the perspective of a writer, because I couldn't write it from the perspective of Jiro himself. I just didn't have to, I don't, I don't, I mean, I, I, I feel like you'd have to be an actual chef or, or at least have a shit ton of understanding of sushi to be able to write it directly from Jiro's perspective. So I did the next best thing. And I wrote from like a fail, like a, a writer that thinks he's failed and has, has failed at, at like many a thing. Um, and then kind of create this like mock scenario where, it's trying to, to to get the cadence of the documentary it's based off of, and obviously, of course, Jero himself. But uh, but yeah, no, that's awesome. It's awesome that you like picked up on on some of that stuff. Um, yeah, it's it it helps that um, the writerly part of my brain. It's like this is the only thing I care about. How good <laughs> is their prose? How are they like um? So and, and it was is this really immaculate and lovely thing. It had um. So my favorite book that came out last year was uh, the translation of Tokyo Ueno Station. Like, I just, I cannot uh, rave about that enough. Mm. Fucking immaculate. Just, mm. and this had a similar kind of like, a similar kind of like, uh, like stabbing sensation as I was reading it, where it's like, it's less objectively like deeply tragic obviously um right. like uh <laughs> obviously like though because like so much of my stuff as, as uh as we mentioned earlier like my previous book was my pet serial killer and the stuff that's coming out after this which i can't talk about yet uh mm -hmm. but a lot of that stuff is back in the crime and like you know crime world uh horror like that's sort of more where i operate i mean i don't i don't i go into a book not thinking about like what the genre is going to be. It just so happens that a lot of the time, the stuff I want to explore happens to be in that dark side of humanity, which involves hurting itself. Um, and this is not, this is an, this is like the exact opposite, but I love how you use the stabbing sensation and you somehow like, and in my mind, like right when you said that, I'm like, you, you found a correlation in this <laughs> book everything else that I write. That's usually far more, straightforward in terms of like the actual quote unquote stabbing motion. There's usually actual stabbings. In those <laughs> I think it helps that one you're, um, I mean, even clearly from, from the pros here, like if this is the only thing of yours that someone had read, they didn't know about your involvement with those other things. You clearly are like a, a skilled writer. Like, you know, that part that then because of that, when writing something like crime or horror and you, know, we, talk about this a lot because i've written a bunch of horror gareth has written horror um gareth yeah. i think has written more crime than me but we both, like, I, I haven't written oh, crime or horror i thought i, I thought this you, i could have i could have sworn that you told me that uh, whatever um no, i guess maybe i'm a single I'm, bit well i literally fiction all the way i'm 100 percent serious I was I was throwing, I was throwing some some uh I guess, some I guess over that book you sent me then I guess that wasn't horror that I, yeah that was okay but okay in on. fairness I associate like Ingmar Bergman with horror as well so like oh, if, you get, yeah. if you get literary in a certain way and it just focuses on because 
Uh, the thing I was getting, okay, apparently I was completely wrong about Gareth, and I was just making some assumption. Yeah. Um, Damn, but yeah. uh, <laughs> I, I guess I was saying, before, before you move forward, though, like also, like when you said I'm literary 100%, <laughs> I, uh, just to speak from for, for the authors that are for, more in the genre sense, like, I mean, these, these boundaries are shifting and they're blurring. Oh, yeah. Like going <laughs> from like Ursula K. Le Guin to like Phil K. Dick and all everyone else in the past and like obviously everyone now who's more in the genre space but doing a lot of literary stuff in the genre space. Like th th there's a reason why we called we created this whole term called speculative fiction because everyone needs to put a box around something. But if you call it speculative fiction, it can be literary and genre at the same time. And I'm just I'm not saying it, I'm just like throwing that in. <laughs> Oh yeah, I, I, I was kidding. That, that was supposed yeah. to be taken sarcastically. Don't, don't, don't like sell yourself short in terms of like if you are writing, if you're writing a crime novel right now that has a literary event, do that. Just go with it. Don't fucking like <laughs> it, like it's it's too juvenile or too like like those those that's like what the publishing industry did to the genre. Like they yeah. they made it based on sales. They basically told people that hey yeah you know it's a, it's a mass market book. It's a whatever. It's just about like some. It's like it's one of those like heists stories but maybe that heist story has a, a, a compelling plot that explores a certain dynamic of madness that that no literary book directly literary book at the time ha, ha, is able to do is it's it's very alienating is all i'm saying and we create this weird uh, we, we see as a result of it that this weird like shadow war that gets created only within certain specifically like uh, amateur worlds of of writing where the idea of like the genre people being embattled by the literary people and they have to turn how snobbish they are and then you get to the literary space and it's like how childish the genre and you're like obviously you get far enough into either one of them and it's like that doesn't actually exist like pe most people read both if they're reading a lot oh yeah um, and yeah, so yeah. it's this it's this weird <laughs> thing where you then run into other people where they're like yeah I, like mostly it's mouthy amateurs who are like, yeah, I write genre fiction, but I don't need to be worried about those snobbish brats. And you're like, dog, every, everyone likes Isaac Asimov, literally everyone. <laughs> like I, that's like, let's like, let's go to music. Let's take it into music. Like this is very similar to like anyone that gets, like you talk to some, some guy or whatever. who's like <laughs> super elitist about subgenres of various forms of, you know, death metal or just metal or like hardcore and, and like, oh, metalcore don't, yeah, nothing, nothing metalcore can be ever be good. It's all that shit. It's just that stuff all over again. You know? Yeah. And then label you get it. deeper in and people are like, I don't know. I mean, we all, we all like Madonna, right? And it's like, yeah, no, I, absolutely. No, she's <laughs> like, yeah. And we all love like cannibal courts. It's like, yeah, no, they slap. They're crazy. They're crazy good. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, that I, so the, the corollary that I was trying to bring is that if you have both a a sensitivity, you don't even have to deliberately be writing like thinking of yourself as I'm writing literary fiction. But if you have a sensitivity to the writing that you're doing, making either horror or crime, you tend to gravitate towards this like kernel that's inside of it, where mm -hmm. the horrific events, the ghosts, things like that are uh, ephemera wicked off of this thing. I mean, that's how you get Absolutely. the good writing of Derrida about like ontology and interrogating the Gothic as a mode of philosophy to look at social trauma and various things like that. Um, look at, look at uh, we've always lived in the castle. Perfect exactly. example. You know, yeah. Um, love that book. Have the uh, recent um, Penguin edition on my shelf right now because I my partner had never read it and my yeah. copy is in storage and I was like. 
surprise here's a fucking brilliant ass book <laughs> yeah you got the, you got the nice like wood like, like graphic uh, yeah novel kind of cover yeah. yeah yeah it's i i loved the cover design for it and it's way better than the version i had which is the one where it's like the girl's head or face gets morphed into like a the front of a house yeah. i'm like i like yeah. that cover but yeah um but I feel like that's the way. Like, so I remember, like writers are always like talking about what does it even mean to to make it, quote unquote. Honestly, I think all making it is is like having the ability to put on your shelf a book of yours that has like a cover that you're like, I would buy that just for the cover alone. Like I, this, the entire product took the the story and everything that can is contained within and allowed the the it was able to digest what it is about and create this masterful looking like visual feast we, you know we talked about that actually with um with with our interview with the author of the novel docile which it's a really excellent sci-fi or spe- i feel speculative more comfortable fiction. calling it spec speculative fiction novel <laughs> um mm. precisely because of that that it's like trying to convey to someone that a great cover and a great binding and things like that of of a book the reason why other writers love it so much is if you toil in the world for long enough you'll either see or make zines you'll see or make chat books you'll see or make these like smaller public and you understand why those choices are made why people made them you don't turn your nose up at them because there's a lot of crazy brilliant writing hiding behind what a lot of people would scoff at as amateurish but you're like no that's Absolutely. you don't have the money for like a hardback like perfect bound edition of something, but you have great writing and you want to show it to people or either of your own or you're a, a publisher and you're like this book that someone sent me is fucking great, but I don't have the money for a crazy fancy edition, but people need to read it. So yeah. then that winds up becoming, you look at something where you're like your book resonated enough that they were like, we're going to get a graphic designer who's fucking great to work on this. Like, holy shit. Holy shit, dude. <laughs> like, yeah, just the criterion collection, dude. It's the criterion collection uh, effect. Basically, like yeah. having something that you could treasure both as an actual piece of art or like something you can enjoy, but also something you can proudly show like on, on your shelf or like just hold it and hand it to someone and be like, yeah, look at this. Well, um, I was, I was thinking of when uh, Morrissey published his uh, autobiography. And um, he and it looked ma- like shit. <laughs> uh, no, it, well, it came in two editions actually. The, the American edition, which you guys have probably seen, is looks like shit. Yeah, and it reads like <laughs> yeah. shit and is awful. And yeah, because he sucks. The, yeah, because he sucks. I, I hope he dies. And um, but the UK edition was um, published. Yeah, it was a Penguin classic. It was yeah. bought out as a Penguin classic because he demanded that as part of his. So crazy. Can you imagine that? You're like, yo, yo, uh, I'm such amazing fucking (laughs) musician that if I'm going to write my biography and you're going to buy it, and and if you want to buy it, sure, but guess what? I need to be a fucking classic. Not just any classic, a penguin classic, which is pretty much up there with Charles Dickens and Dostoevsky and stuff. It's like that's that's the the highest mark of literary accolade in a way that, like, you. Because it's something like anyone can understand. Like, yeah. obviously, you can get certain literary, like a pushcart prize is massive. It's a massive, massive deal, but it doesn't mean anything to people outside of writing. Meanwhile, like, yeah, I'm published literally next to like the greatest works of 
of English literature and world literature. I've got that black like that. little stash thing on half of my cover with like the orange tint. Yep, that's me. And um, absolutely like the the black bar that has yep. the orange like italics for the oh love it love that shit i will <laughs> i will give up first editions for a good penguin one they just like they care yep. about how my bookshelf looks i'm vain i'm i'm venal i'll i'll treasure that <laughs> Are you one of the people that has like all the entire collection like i'm sure i feel like there's only 50 to 100 people that have an entire penguin classics collection it oh, must god be no i don't have near enough money for that mm. although the, like most of a lot of philosophy texts that i have are the penguin classic ones because they also do a really goddamn good job of getting like like the translator they picked for nietzsche's stuff also has commentary for it um and it makes it far more lucid than and in a way that like totally defangs the dumb edgelord nonsense that you get pulled out of it sometimes. Right. Um, but yeah, like the idea that someone like, oh, they gave a shit about this book. They gave enough of a shit that they pumped money into making this book look good. And you only do that if one, you think a book will sell and then, you know, whatever. Um, that's a whole thing that like, I don't, I don't think any serious writer cares plus or minus about that outside of like, you all, you always want your book to sell. Like, obviously. Um, but oh, yeah. it's not, it's not a mark of the same kind of thing. Feels far more random. What books like explode and what don't to the point it, where it's like, yeah, I mean, I, 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 I think like people can educate a guess and they do really hard. They spend a lot of money trying to like buy out the thing, like trying to like you know essentially have a huge marketing campaign that helps like push a book out into the forefront. But even then, you never fucking know, you know. You just like like know. one of the most bananas things of all time is that Fifty Shades of Grey fucking exploded, like just yeah, just fucking it huge. It fucking exploded for sure. And it's like there's <laughs> lots 50 of shades, Fifty Shades of of do like hundred dollar bills, yeah. It's like there's there's tons of erotica too, so it's not even just that it's like, well, of course people love to jack off. Like that that's a flippant thing. It's like, but why that one? Not even knocking it. I just I it's fascinating. It was um so I I worked for Random House for a time and and left kind of just before that got big. And if I'd stayed, I would have been given a four four thousand pound check. At Damn. Christmas for a yeah. Christmas bonus because everyone in Random House got that. Uh, the reason it got big is just because um, a bunch of like mummy blogs uh, got hold of it somehow, and it'd been out for a while, like months, and just a few bloggers got hold of it, and it just it spread virally, and that was just it. And now it's a series of films. Yeah, but see, see how it's so powerful to how like the word of mouth works. But then it's funny because uh, just by so you've yeah you've worked in publishing too so you understand how the mind works in in, in like the the machine works on the inside like seeing that then all of a sudden all the publicists and whatever like the the senior level people are like okay so so the answer is getting on those blogs mm -hmm, all right yeah. so 51 shades of gray is gonna be we gotta, we gotta hit up these blogs these these mommy reader blogs and these book clubs because that's seriously where, where the money is and then it doesn't work because like oh, yeah yeah my, my <laughs> next job along was at the uh, bloomsbury stuffing envelopes full of um uh books that were just randomly assigned to tiny blogs with, with like zero readership just because they thought maybe this blog is going to be the one they'll maybe make 
this next book, the next Fifty Shades. It was yep. a total waste of time and and waste of paper. It was just everyone wasted their time on that. And yeah, then the next thing was what, like Sally Rooney or something. And uh, no one knows. Know. There are a lot kid. of other. Yeah, yeah, there's been a wave. There's always a wave of different books that hit. You know, oh, the Crawdads book was a recent one. That where the Crawdad. I didn't even know that one. That doesn't. I, I don't know anything about it either, except that I remember reading something online and, and this disclaimer: Michael didn't really pay too much attention to this because he's tired <laughs> of hearing about all this shit. But um, basically, it's something about how like the actual author was involved with something that may or may not be like criminal. Um, I think oh. that was. But that has nothing to do with the book. It's just people were trying to spin it because um, the book sells so fucking well. I think it's been like number one on New York Times bestseller list for like who knows how many weeks. Two digits at least. 12 weeks, 24 weeks, something like that. Okay, I've never heard of this one. Yeah, you're looking it up. It's Where the Crawdads Sing, which sounds very appealing to me. Delia Owens. Yeah. Uh, It's not number one right now. Weirdly, Little Fires Everywhere is, uh, yeah. Oh yeah, Fires Everywhere is, is. Oh yeah, because of the new um, the new U- uh, Hulu series, I think. Oh right, okay, that makes sense. Yeah. Well, I'm glad so. that a uh, an actual good book got a uh, a TV series. Well, okay, so that's unfair. Plenty of good books do get TV series, and I don't watch those series because they seem bad. I mean, I'm 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 glad for Celeste, great <laughs> novelist. Yeah. Um, Are you saying If It Bleeds by Stephen King is not a good? Um, a good, good book. Oh my god! So, so this I, this is a, a brief aside, but it drives me nuts. I get the I get an amount of Stephen King apologism that I see around because he does he he's like a perennial favorite of people who've just started writing, and then you get deeper into things and you look back and go, wait, a lot of these things are really shitty. But and then you know you go back even later and you're like, no, okay, there's. He's been around for long enough that he's generated enough stuff that you can look and and find craft in his work. That's that's not necessarily hard. But seeing some people turn around and then go, yeah, Stephen King is great. And it's like, what? <laughs> what? Like, he has things that I like. I can say that. But great? Like, capital mm. G, great? Like, what? Can, can you read? Yeah. Like, I mean... Maybe like, not since the 80s. Beyond all, that, dude, beyond all that, like, can we, like, we have to just acknowledge the fact that, yeah, I mean, sure, he's a full-time writer, but even if you're a full-time writer, no, like, full-time writers don't generate that that kind of output, and like, he's been able to. So, like, yeah, uh, oh yeah, he's, no, he's looking at that, like, Jesus Christ, man. Massive, I mean, like, people, massive like, hats off to him. I could never fucking yeah. like. People say huh. I'm prolific, and I'm just like I look at like all my shits like on you know like whatever d- d- sales and all this other stuff is a whole different thing. But like I couldn't, I, I don't even know how he does it. Like even with a full, even if you spent all day every day writing, you wouldn't be able to put out. I wouldn't be able to put out that that kind of output like two or three books a year, and they're all like 500 pages. It's crazy. Yeah, it's uh, yeah. So I, I don't, I don't mean that as disrespect to him. The dude's uh, um, I'm never going to even approach what he's done. I know that. Like that's that ship is beyond sailed. It's just like it's on fire in the dock. It's his own, it's his own ship. He's he's got the only ship of that type, and he's <laughs> yeah. on it right now. And yeah, he's you rocking know, he it. Should laugh all the way to the bank. That's why I feel comfortable saying this stuff because. Motherfucker's got so much fucking money he can deal with me being, you know, whatever. He's he's fine. Um, <laughs> fine. But yeah, fine. but so, so the, the the thing that I was bringing up 
to like to wrap that thing up is that you grab that kernel of that like the emotional core of what makes someone write horror, what makes someone write crime. Like there are two things. You're either a fashy piece of shit who delights in suffering, or there's that, that thing that like unnameable thing of examining suffering and examining terror and all these yeah. that, that lives in this, but it feels, it helps that I was reading. Um, I was reading the mezzanine for the first time alongside Ooh, as I was reading this. Interesting. interesting. Yeah. That's a, and that's just, a- just because I, 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 it's I've seen the name a lot in around other books that I love, and I was like, well, it's short, and I've never read it before. And, ah, fuck it, I'm in quarantine. Let's knock it out. Um, what do you I think? Liked I liked it a lot. There's a lot of. I get why people reference it a lot because it feels. Uh, <laughs> it admittedly feels like an MFA thesis, um, <laughs> and not necessarily in, uh, to its benefit, but. At, as a writer looking at it, it's like a, um, it feels like a good academic paper of here's a controlled, prolonged experiment in this approach and look at how much of it works. And, yeah. you know, obviously you become aware of like, okay, well, I don't need to read about shoelaces and shit like this much, but, um, as like a more digestible version of the same idea behind like infinite jest, but it's 130 pages as opposed to 800 pages. Hard to knock it. Um, but that comparison of the roaming mind and then your uh, yours, which has a lot more tinges of regret, it made those little tinges like it pulled those out a little bit more for me. So I was a bit more aware of them because putting them yeah. side by side, there's at least there's at least a modal similarity in, in portions. And so it made me like, Oh, this, you know, this is someone who's like aching, you know, it's, it's controlled ache. It's a mature one. It's one where you're like, well, I'm not going to destroy myself because I haven't, but that, and I was like, Oh, Oh, mm." I I was also (laughs) in a very literary mood. So I just like, Oh, I I time to sit and agonize with this character. Yes. Let me just feel the feels. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> and so it's it, and also the um obviously non-identical but at least comparable um narrative voices in terms of spinning these little details to eventually like g- generating a cloud out of little concrete things as opposed to it necessarily being like full proustian like or joycean like just a pure language um which right. I love that shit obviously but it's it, you had more control than to do that and i was like oh this is uh and so like yeah that that notion of like the the stabbing of like every now and again these pangs of regret or pangs of longing would just like fuck fuck like (laughs) well that's that 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 means a lot man thanks yeah absolutely so yeah so this is coming out stabbing sorry sorry sorry. i just wanted like what you said you said stabbing pains of what Um, uh regret and longing I like that. I like that. But I'll cover. <laughs> so you got this coming out May twelfth. Yeah. Um, and what else are you up to? Because you you're probably up to something, right? You're, you're doing something. Um, I mean, I can't say any of that right now because nothing's nah. announced. But I've got I've got a couple projects that have, that are one. I'll just give you this. One's coming out. Either it depends on obviously it's a weird time, so it might get pushed back. But 
I've got another book that will be announced maybe relatively soon that will either come out in October of this year or be pushed back to next year, depending on the nature of our reality. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's other stuff too, but I can't talk about that. So, okay. Yeah. Cool. Well, it's, it's going to be cool. So, and the, the, okay. I, I'm not going to press you for any further details on your new books. <laughs> I'm sure you, I'm sure they're good. But, uh, well, um, uh, I wish I could say more. I just can't literally. So, yeah. Uh, so, yeah, folks at home, do do check out Dreams of Being. Um, based on the two chapters I read, it was it is very good, and um, Magda likes it, and he's he knows good stuff. Stabbing uh, regret, but also it's a lot of there's a lot of sushi involved. So you know, uh-huh. yeah, yeah. It, it might be kind of you might want to leave it till um, the quarantine ends because I just want to eat sushi <laughs> now. <laughs> yeah. I did order food literally like every time I would put the book down. I'd be like, oh, there are places that do carry out. Like, <laughs> Oh, lucky you, man. Like, uh, <laughs> well, I, I, I wrote it. I like my ritual when I was writing it. Um, I would eat sushi either before or after it. So it's just like dumb, like writerly stuff that probably didn't. I don't think it actually affected what I wrote, like, but it helped me, you know, it helped me. <laughs> It helped me either get out of the chair or like reach that goal or whatever. But yeah, I ordered I ordered takeout, like sushi takeout from the same place in Brooklyn every time I'd sit down and write this book. And uh yeah, I miss that place. I hope they're still around when, when this is over. What if you um slowly accumulated mercury poisoning from the tuna and like the later chapters nice, are just like the nice, best? Uh, that'd be a nice uh, Wikipedia like death, right? Like you'd be like <laughs> Michael Sandler died of mercury poisoning because he ate too goddamn. <laughs> much sushi yeah it could happen it, it would be a, a good a branding thing oh be great branded thing for this uh, book i mean like you know we have we have absolute absolutely the the problematic king himself mishima going ultimate branding technique getting beheaded oh, yeah. by his lover just yeah. classic branding right there you would kill for a PR guy to come up with a, a like a way to advertise your book that even comes close to getting beheaded by your lover during a failed military coup, just incredible. I thought he, I thought he, I thought he like harakiri himself. Uh, yeah, but, that's part um, of it. Yeah, like like the, the end part of the harakiri or seppuku is the, uh, uh, someone else beheads you because you can't cut your own stomach open even more. Okay, okay, you know, so, yeah, 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 a bit of a yeah, yeah. ordeal to cut Crazy your own stomach ball. open. Yes. Damn! So, yeah, so yeah. baller. Yeah. Totally makes up for all the fast stuff because he's crazy dead. Um, <laughs> wow. But uh, that, like, getting mercury poisoning and dying for a book about it's somewhat about sushi. Like, uh, sushi is a major component. I, I, I hesitated saying the book is about sushi because that makes <laughs> it <laughs> like that's it, baby. That's it. I read this whole book, and you know what I thought? This man was talking about. Sushi. sushi. Yep. Sushi. Nothing else. That's Just what sushi. I got out of it. <laughs> We're all hungry, hungry boys right now. Um, so yeah, folks, go out and buy this on May twelfth. Um, Jiro doesn't know shit about dreaming of dreaming of sushi. We're the ones fucking. I'm Langdon dreams yeah. of sushi right now. Is what's who's dreaming of sushi? Is that's why it's up. <laughs> wow. All right. <laughs> That's going to be the preview uh, thing. But uh, anyway, so we, we're going to head off. Uh, we're going to end with uh, another a, a Brooklyn-based project. 
Um, maybe they've, uh, like you, left the city by now. But um, so, friend of the show, uh, Megan is the um, singer for this band, Couch Slut out of Brooklyn. Um, Absolutely fucking incredible band. Yeah, everyone loves this band. No one's got a bad thing to say about a single thing they've ever done, and for a good reason. It's just all so good. And they just dropped out of absolutely nowhere, Beyonce style, on Friday, which was Bandcamp.com's um, uh, day where they don't uh, take any, they don't take a cut of any band sales. So a lot of bands did really well, and um, a lot of friend again friends of the show. Well, shout out to Andy for like selling loads and like, um, that's Andy from uh, the band Kena. Um, yeah. Couch that just dropped this album. It's called Take a Chance on Rock and Roll. Just totally incongruous title. Uh, and it's <laughs> it's easily as good as their previous two. Um, Contempt to My Life as a Woman. Um, yeah, just... And I, they really needed no introduction at this point. Just one of the great American bands right now. Um, so we're going to play track seven off of this called i'm 14 uh if you go to Bandcamp, you can read you read the lyrics that that's uh, you can probably hear the lyrics actually uh, megan's a quite clear vocalist it's um it's, it's a bit dark i'll say it's a bit bit grim what's happening here to this uh, 14 year old protagonist of this song uh but i i picked this particularly because um band member uh, amy mills uh, plays trumpet on it and does this like incredibly good like little jazz solo. Um, they've always had like other instrumentation on their stuff before. There was quite a lot of that on, on Contempt, but um, yeah, there's just really good jazz on this now. I know I know they they're all fans of tons of different kinds of music, so it totally makes sense. But um, yeah, just a beautiful, beautiful piece of jazz going on here in the middle of a horrible story about a fourteen-year-old. Mm. Um, so that is that's what you're going to be hearing in a minute but if you come back next week we're going to be talking about a long ass dark fantasy book we're we're going to we're going to do it we we've haven't done our long promised um gormengast episode but we're going to do the next best thing we will do gormengast one of these days but god um, i love gormengast fuck yeah. yeah i was gonna say wow yeah that's yeah, a, that's an undertaking You'd yeah, be surprised we... at how hard it is to get other people to talk about Gormenghast. <laughs> yeah. Mostly yeah. because you have to convince people to remember all of Gormenghast or to reread all of Gormenghast or to read for the first time all of Gormenghast. And it's tough. It's so talking, fucking tough. Talking about three and a half books. Hmm. Yep. So, yeah. We, we'll, we've only got one book to read this mm -hmm. time. It's, it's a good one. Oh, uh, yeah. We, we got a Love bunch of other my, stuff coming up. Fucking literary fantasy. Fuck. Fuck. It's so bald. Yeah. Shit. Exactly. <laughs> so, um, yeah, we're we're gonna be we're gonna be doing that on next week's episode. We've got Andy Kaufman has written a novel. So, oh god, yeah, yeah, one. Yeah, yeah. Charlie Kaufman. What am I talking? Is it Charlie? <laughs> I'm just like, Andy Kaufman. I'm he's sorry, he's very dead. Shit. <laughs> yeah, that's it's how that's how he comes back is yeah. as a novelist. Yeah. So yeah, Charlie Kaufman has written a novel. Uh, it's about an animated film that goes on for like a week, 
but yep. a guy only has one frame of it and has to reconstruct it. Just yeah. I read the first couple pages of that and I left my galley in, in Brooklyn. Um I don't know, I have nothing to say about it yet. It's it's gonna definitely be a long winded one for sure. Oh, is it big? It's big. It's like six hundred oh. six hundred pages. Oh god, why do I put myself in for these things? Well, we're gonna have to read fucking a six hundred page book and fucking lickety split. <laughs> Yo, that that other one's like five hundred pages as well. Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah, no, Ankind to... not kind takes a lot. It's it's gonna Ugh. it definitely goes in the mode of like pinch on and all other stuff where it's like trying to do all this different stuff with uh, formal experimentation and allowing itself to ramble through um, its scenes. Yeah. But, okay, um, well, maybe maybe that'll be a two-parter. But um, <laughs> yeah, and the, the the fantasy book, um, uh, Mordu, uh, is also m- massive as well. So I need to like cure myself of ADHD over the next few days before we get to that one. Cool. I read every fantasy book in one or two sittings. I don't know what it is about it. <coughs> I'm like, oh shit, is that a wizard? And then you know, I close the book and I'm like, why is the sun out? Is it? Oh, it's it's eleven a.m. What? <laughs> like, wow. We're gonna be we're gonna be doing that for more, Drew. I think uh-huh. it, it's yeah, it's gonna be a good one. But um, yeah, folks, go buy uh, Dreams of Being. Go listen to Couch Slut. They're here right now with I'm fourteen.